Hello. There is a home for films that no one cares for. The underappreciated, the despised, the forgotten. Welcome to Cinema Limbo. My name is Jeremy Phillips, and tonight's film is the 1998 action-adventure The Avengers, based on the 1960s TV series. This is a movie close to my heart. I was very excited when I first heard they were making an Avengers movie, and I remember seeing the trailer packaged on a VHS given away with Empire magazine, and it looked great. When it came out, it wasn't shown to critics, and when they did go and see it, it had very negative reception. Very few people went to see it on its opening weekend. It crashed out of the top ten in the US in a week, it took three weeks in the UK, and it wound up losing a lot of money for Warner Brothers. It killed the career of its director. Its writers had a single screen credit since then on another movie that bombed, called The Gunman, that came out earlier this year. Ray Fiennes hasn't headlined a blockbuster since then, Uma Thurman went into hiding, and Sean Connery retired several years later. I, however, think that, though it's hardly a lost masterpiece, it isn't nearly as bad as people say, and worthy of re-evaluation. Joining me is George Grimwood, and apologies in advance for the background noise, since this English country garden wasn't quite as tranquil as it could have been. Well, I remember vaguely watching it at the time and having high anticipations and expectations. Being, I was quite young, but I remember in, I thought it was probably about 1998, so I would have been about 13, 14 years old. And if I remember rightly, I had been watching some repeats that had been on, uh, I think, on one of the BBC channels, BBC Two perhaps, that of a weekend, maybe, or usually Tuesdays. I don't know. I think that was Channel Four, actually. Was it? Yeah. See, yeah, that's, that's, that's how bad my memory is. And you've got all that to look forward to. So I've rewatched it recently, and it's not how I remember. I think the benefit of being younger is that a lot of things I didn't notice then, unfortunately, I noticed this time. But being positive about it, which I am, I'm very positive about it, because, well, from the get-go, you know, it's... It's a very positive film about the British lifestyle. It's very representative. It has feminist elements. It has an insight and benefit of seeing how disability rights are treated in high government jobs. It's a very pro-multicultural movie. That I did see one black character in there, which is certainly an advance from the original TV show, which had no black characters of any kind. Are you not saying Teddy, the teddy bear? I'm not sure that counts. No, uh, Brenda, mother's assistant. Ah, yes. I thought you meant one of the teddy bears. One of the te- Sean Connery's teddy bear, which is black. Mm. That doesn't really count. Because they were all different colours. They were all different colours, and it was great to see that kind of forward thinking mm. in, in terms of the set design, even though it doesn't make any sense in the context of the movie. Mm. It's worth pointing out that in my notes, the one word that does recur all the time is why. Yes. Now, that's funny you should say that, because when you say why, it reminds me of a certain episode of The Prisoner another 60s cult series. And I have a question. I don't know if you'll be able to answer it or not, but I was very interested to see that the entrance to the Ministry's secret base underground looked very much like where Patrick McGowan drives to in his Lotus in the opening titles of The Prisoner. It's actually a Caterham 7 rather than The Lotus. <laughs> well, he calls it a Lotus. <laughs> yes, I hadn't actually noticed it before watching it this time, but it does appear to be the same little stretch of road, a car park just across the road from the Houses of Parliament, which is an entirely appropriate place mm. to have it. That could well be a little nod towards the prisoner. It could, it could just be that they found a really good location and didn't really think about it any further. Mm. But that's something that, yeah, it's an interesting little connection. And I think it's also fair to note at this point as well that the director, Jeremiah S. Chechik, as he's known, he, he, he was, at this point, 
very made a very conscious effort with Christmas Vacation and Benny and June, two very important films in our culture. And Christmas Vacation is an important film in our culture. It's a great film. Mm. I know that's it is it is a film that is generally loved. Yes. Well, it's a centerpiece in Chevy Chase's career, if not if not the end piece. But <laughs> with uh, if. I mean, I, as you may or may not know, I uh, have recently been, uh, for uh, various reasons, looking at the 1993 show that he did, uh, the Chevy Chase show, which... I've, I've heard of this. It's not good. It's, uh, it, uh, but to be fair, uh, I'm being positive today. And in that respect, yes, the Avengers, the opening of the Avengers, I, I was pretty impressed with the weather on it in the opening credits or oh, the opening title sequence mm. um, yes I, I like it a great deal it, it has a sort of a 60s Bondian type tone to it but it does feel like its own thing and the opening title music they, they don't use the Avengers theme they actually very much like with the new version of Casino Royale they save the Avengers theme right to the end where it really sort of right now they have become Steve and Mrs. Peel in the same way that in Casino Royale, the Bond theme is saved right until the end credits when Bond says the, the line, Bond James Bond, for the first time. So in the opening titles, we have a very atmospheric piece, which forms a theme for the entire score and is almost acts as an overture. And in terms of the credits themselves, I mean, star quality, you know it's going to be a good film. You know it's going to be a fantastic film because of all these amazing people in it, and certainly in retrospect. Sean Ryder. Sean Ryder. <laughs> Eddie Izzard. Keely Hawes. Keely, it's Keely Hawes' uh, first film. In mm. fact, I believe. I remember her fondly in karaoke, Dennis Potter's karaoke. Well, having checked IMDb, it was in fact Keely Hall's first film, although you're, you're right, as you said, that uh, she was actually in uh, Dennis Potter's karaoke beforehand. Yeah, I remember her in that because there was a an explicit scene with Richard E. Grant, which kind of took the edge off it. It's not not, not a, a sexy scene that you could enjoy uh, because Richard E. Grant's O-face... <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's Dennis Potter, so any, any pleasure is marred with guilt. Mm. I miss Gina Bellman. That's <laughs> just by the by. But yeah, it, big names, big names in those titles. You got Ralph Fiennes, Uma Thurman, Ralph Fiennes, Ranulph, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, Rafe Fiennes. I, I call him Sir Ranulph Fiennes. That's, I, that's someone else. Yeah, I thought he could fight really well without the lack of fingers <laughs> and the frostbite that he lost. Is that the same one? No. No, I think that's right. He's also the one who got thrown out of the SAS for blowing up the set of Doctor Doolittle. I, I'm sold. That works <laughs> for me. But yeah, no, uh, is he, is he, but it's written Ralph, isn't it? Yes, but it's pronounced Rafe because there are two different ways of pronouncing it. But then there's Rafe Spall, but that's actually spelt Rafe. Yes. So how can they be pronounced the same? But... Because English is a complex language. As we discover it, in the film. As we all discover in the film. But yeah, Fiona Shaw I wasn't familiar with. Um, I, well, she's been in the Harry Potter movies. She's um, Aunt Petunia. But she's better known as a Shakespearean actress. She's uh, won a number of awards, I believe. And she, I think a couple of years ago, maybe a bit longer ago, she was in a version of Richard II in the lead role. Um, so she's quite a dramatic heavyweight, but more stage rather than screen. Mm. Like a female Bob Peck. Kind of a foreboding Cassandra-style character in this film. <laughs> Yes, um, although the character of Father does actually, I, I checked, she does actually appear in the TV show, but only in one episode 
in the very last episode of the original show. Wow. And Mother actually only appears in the final series and never actually meets Emma Peel on screen. They have one episode in which Emma only has a brief cameo. Breaking barriers this film. I know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a greatest hits of the Avengers, but only in terms of featuring a number of characters. Mm. There's no Ian Hendry, unfortunately, who was Steve's original partner and who left after the first series to become a big star in Hollywood and then didn't. Didn't he do well? He did, yeah, he did do very well. If you've never heard of him, don't worry. <laughs> no one else has either. He was in Get Carter. Oh, well. He's the one who dies at the end of Get Carter. I, actually, now that you mention it, I think he also had a bit role. Actually, he had quite a sad story, didn't he, now that I think about it? Um, it I mean, it wasn't, I think, in the main that he, uh, on, the, on the success of the event of the first series of The Avengers, and actually a previous series he was in, started called Police Surgeon, to which The Avengers was a quasi-sequel. He became quite a big name in the UK and assumed that that would be able to translate into making it in Hollywood. And unfortunately, he didn't. He never really had some leading man looks. He looked a bit too dark and a bit too menacing. And um, he wound up back in the UK. Um, as I say, his most famous role is in Get Carter as Eric Pace, who winds up getting a shotgun to the head, but it's the wrong end of the shotgun. And only a few years later, I believe, um, right at the end of the 70s, certainly the early 80s, he was effectively dying of alcohol-related disease. And... If, if I'm wrong, then um, feel free to write in and correct me, but I'm, I'm not going to read anything you said. Well, I, I mean, now that you mention it, you see, I'm, we're also in the process, I'm in the process of recording a Sweeney podcast. Oh, shut it. Cool. All right, I was. <laughs> no, Get I, your trousers on, because you're nicked. We're calling That's what it, they say. Well, we're calling it Sweeney Pod. <laughs> and <laughs> That is good, actually. I, I, well, I, I can't take credit for it. That was Ocho from the Sitcom Club podcast, oh. who came up with that wonderful... Uh, Turn of phrase, and I, if I recall correctly, my notes from the first episode, which is focusing on the first episode of the Sweeney, right. Ian Hendry is in the very first episode, playing one of Brian Blessed's henchman, lackey kind of characters. So that was sort of the level that he was working at by then. He'd be playing some second string char- you know, character roles, but they were all the same. He does actually appear in a, an episode of the New Avengers. When the, the series was brought back in the mid seventies, it does appear as an old colleague of Steve's, but a different character. And th- there is very much a sense of, you know, this is actually quite sad that you know, he, he presumably had hopes and dreams of making it big, and then didn't, and effectively drank himself to death. For a second, I thought, I, I thought you meant for a second in that scene he has with John Steed. John Steed ends the scene going, "This is actually <laughs> quite sad." Well, that's, that, that is kind of the undertone to the whole story, that he's, he's an agent who, um, I believe, he's brainwashed and sort of he's been, spent a lot of time out in the wilderness, as it were. And Steve sort of feels guilty about what happened to him. And I can imagine that there might have been an, an undercurrent there to how Patrick McNee saw his relationship, even though McNee never, was never really a huge star outside of the Avengers. He, he'd made a success of it, and Henry hadn't. Mm. We were talking about the opening titles. It's worth noting that there is an entire opening sequence to the movie that was supposed to go before the titles, which explains the entire plot, sets everything up, which was cut. Oh. Uh, it's, I don't think we've actually mentioned so far. The original cut of the movie is nearly half an hour longer. Mm. <laughs> um, there was a test screening, apparently in Phoenix, Arizona, which went so badly that the release date for the movie was shunted back by two months. 
It's supposed to come out in June 2008. It wound up coming out in August. And um, about half an hour was cut from the movie. And consequently, uh, the entire film had to be rescored very, very quickly. Originally, Michael Kamen, a BAFTA-winning composer who worked on the Lethal Weapon films and was a, very much as a veteran of this kind of thing, had uh, worked on a score that was largely based around the Avengers theme, but with the delay. And you recut version of the score was needed, which he didn't have time for. So Joel McNeely was hired and created a completely new score from scratch. And it's actually pretty good. <laughs> That's the really yeah. shocking thing. Yeah, I mean, you could lay that on a standard spy film. Yeah, it's it's light and pacey and upbeat. Hmm. He saves the Avengers theme, as, a, as, a, as I think I said, he saves the Avengers theme for the, uh, the end of the movie as a sort of a triumphal flourish. Yeah, it, it does mean that the the film itself winds up being a bit fractured and losing that opening sequence, which has Emma Peel apparently breaking into the Prospero program, destroying it, and then cutting to Sean Connery, hammering away on a giant pipe organ. As with, it were. As, as it were, with a portrait of Emma Peel staring down at him. Mm. That sets up the whole movie. Gone. <laughs> I, I, I found that... It made complete and utter sense, and it was explained so well why he had a picture of her there. Now, the problem there is that I, th- I think the situation is either there's more material that I'm not aware of that's missing, or it's a hangover from an earlier, much earlier draft of the script, where the villain, the Sir August character, was in fact, it turns out to be, the brother of Emma Peel's late husband, Valentine Peel. So it makes sense that there is a reason why he would be obsessed with Emma. In the film, we only know that there is some connection between Sir August and the Prospero programme, so he could have met Emma through that. But we're left to kind of figure this out for ourselves. And although I'm all in favour of audiences joining the dots themselves, I think doing it in so free a way is uh, maybe not the best uh, means of telling this kind of story. Yeah. I found the first few scenes relatively easy to follow. I would say that it kind of did a bit of a Gangs of New York style turn about two-thirds of the way in, in that suddenly, oh no, we're in a rush now. We're explaining things, and now we're in a rush. Let's just round up. Yep, okay. Yeah, It does sprint towards the end. I think it's actually given, under the circumstances, relatively well-paced. Mm. It's, it's never boring. No. Given, given that it's less than 90 minutes, it, has, it would have no excuse to be boring. But it was good of them to cut it in such a way as all the action scenes are closer together. Well, I mean, the opening scene, straight away, it's, it, you go straight into it. It's a bit of, bit of this, bit of that, it's steed. Well, actually, having said that, the opening scene, they use the Avengers thing. They do. When he isn't so, it when he picks so up blown, yes that's 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 flush but then it plays with the entire scene of him going through this village training ground and that the problem there is that did I write about this the opening of sort of in media res means that the, the training course that he's walking through of a, of a sort of a country village where danger lurks around every corner where little old ladies are armed with giant knives and policemen suddenly attack you. It's too similar to the way the world actually works in Avengers land, in this mythical version of England where the 60s have continued to the present day. Mm. So it's really just like John Steed walking down a street. 
and it's no different from an everyday, well, an everyday uh, walk down the you know, through the village green. There's a lot of intentions in the film to represent the British contingency and what everything that the UK represents. I noticed, for example, of course, as you say, country life. Women in prams, milkmen. Women in prams. Women, women in <laughs> women in prams. Hot women in prams. Uh, old little old ladies with prams. Uh, uh, milkmen, garage men, nuns, pot plants, bobbies on the beat, casual violence in a country village. <laughs> All the things you expect. And of course, throughout the film, there's so many different aspects they draw upon: the red telephone box, lots and lots of tea. The weather is the actual plot. It's a lot of intentions. It's, you can tell that it's it's not. It's a film that hasn't been made by English people, but it's been made by real Anglophiles, and they really love what they're doing. But they're maybe not the best people to be doing it. Mm. There doesn't seem to be a sufficient level of distance that they're so excited that they're making the event. It's, oh, let's let's have the villain is. Um, obsessed with the weather because all the way through the Avengers TV series there are villains who have these monomaniacal obsessions so the villain's obsessed with weather so he's named Sir August de Winter great so at a meeting of all his cronies where they're all in disguise for a very good reason so that they don't know who each other are mm. which I think makes sense surely just a little mask would have done it they're, well they're all dressed as giant teddy bears mm. now that's a great Avengerish image of all these teddy bears sitting around a conference table they should have been dressed as clouds, different types of clouds or different types of drizzle. Hmm. It should have been weather themed. And, and later on in the film, Steed and Mrs. Peel are chased by a swarm of mechanical bees. Now, there's a connection there with summer. They should really be mechanical wasps. I thought they were wasps, weren't they? Doesn't it say bees on the back of here? It's a, yeah, according to the soundtrack, it's Flight of the Mechanical Bees. Um, but according to the scripts? According to the script, it probably says something entirely different. With bears. <laughs> Excellent pursued by cloud of mechanical bees. It's funny that you should say they should do all the people in disguise should have been disguised as variations of clouds because I'm glad they weren't because there's that scene where Emma Peel encounters De Winter for the first time and he does a lot of very sexually orientated things within about a minute of each other. And for example, he. T- <laughs> You know, he's a great villain. He's a great perverted villain. He touches Mrs. Peel's hat, like, basically just, you know, tries to choke her. And he mentions how how sometimes he gets ten inches overnight. He has said he's got a fear of, she's got a fear of being wet. He also gets very excited when she starts naming cloud names. And then he gets very upset when he she won't touch his flower. And that happens within a minute. <laughs> All of that happens within a minute. And you're like, wow, Connery is a real pervert. I think some of those things are maybe not as salacious. Getting 10 inches overnight was definitely in the script, but it's not delivered that way. Although having said that, Sean Connery doesn't seem to know how to read very well because some of his dialogue is delivered very, very strangely. Mm. Where... Emma asks him, oh, how would, how would that work? Through microtransmission? He says, yes, by microtransmission. That's not what it says in the script, because that would be a very strange thing for a human being to say. He says, ah, ah, microtransmission. It's ice. Oh, I remember. Oh, good old microtransmission. I remember when I invented that with like a tiny little syringe. Sean Connery's performance all the way through the film is... I can't help wondering if he just ignored all the notes that he was given. 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm Sean Connery. I'm going to play this however I want. Mm. <laughs> I, and he's a lot of fun. He's actually, it's a really fun villain performance. Mm. And he's, he, he has the measure of the material so that he's really going for it. He's playing it big. And it's, a lot of the time it's very entertaining. But as you say, those, most of the scenes with Emma Peel are at least quite creepy if not very creepy, and they do get worse as the film goes on. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, when you've got a character and they're strapped up and they can't move, it might be perceived by the audience, potentially, that when there's a large older man looming over her... That there's, that there's, there's something funny going on. And raising his hand and sort of rubbing it over her chest, chest. and parts... <laughs> Aside from the fact, I mean, on the plus side, it does, the light in her eyes does really emphasise how blue Uma Thurman's eyes were, which I think is a plus point. And also, throughout the film, how she looks good in red and leather. And red leather. But, on the other hand, it is a little bit creepy. But Sean Connery, more or less, is heavily implied. And also the fact he drugs her as well, let's not forget that. Yes. Before he's rubbing her. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, I mean... The, the problem is there's so much stuff that's missing. If we are, if we actually had any idea of what kind of relationship is, uh, August imagines this to be, then it would be a lot easier to work out what on earth he, these scenes are supposed to mean. Mm. But it's sort of hard. To, it's hard to defend. It's hard to account for. Yes, I would say that in in most. Most villains tend to have a dark side, hence hence them being... Hence them being bad. Yeah, hence them being bad. But at the same time, the, the quirkiness it usually is a little bit... Certainly in, in the event of something like the Avengers, should be a little bit more campy, perhaps. Now, don't get me wrong, there's certainly a fair amount of campiness throughout the film. But it's, it's sort of wanting to mix the element... Bearing in mind that this was a 12 certificate. It should be a little bit lighter, I think, than than implied rape, perhaps. Yes. Just a thought. I mean, I'm don't get me wrong. I assume twelve year olds are a bit more aware these days of but the our, dangers of the world. Boy, we don't know about the twelve year olds of 1998. I was there. I was there, man. <laughs> I I just got the imp- I just thought, oh, Um Thurman's pretty, and I'm a I'm a pubescent boy. <laughs> Which is probably what Sean Connery was thinking at the time. He wasn't a pubescent boy. Nobody thought he was. He's a middle-aged man. That's how he got into the character. I'm a a pubescent boy. Um, But it's just, it's a little bit disconcerting. Yes. And I also would suspect that during that scene where he's standing there in his teddy bear costume and he's having a grand meeting with all the other teddy bears in their costumes, you can almost imagine... Him, imagine him in The Untouchables playing the Robert De Niro role during the scene with the other gangsters around the table with the baseball bat. Imagine if they were all dressed as teddies. It would have been a very different atmosphere, I suspect. I think it would have made for a much more entertaining film. There would have been less blood because it would have just filled up the... <laughs> just like, filled, filled up from the feet upwards. Yeah, it would just fill up the suit on the inside. <laughs> no, surely it would come out at the, the, the ankle joints where they put the boots on. Actually, that's the point. Do you reckon that because he uses a lot of knives in the film. He throws the knives at the teddy, at the teddy bear, mm. to the teddy bears. Yes. And they, they fall. No blood. No, they're darts, I thought. Oh, they're, they're darts. I believe so, because at the end where he throws them at John Steed and they catch, he catches them in his hat, they look very much like darts. And I assume that they were sort of poison-tipped darts. Mm. 
Okay. But I would have thought that would have been a bit of blood, but I suppose they got caught in their costumes. Yes. And even when Sean Ryder is shot to death... Which is machine gunned to death <laughs> by the creator of Upstairs Downstairs. Yeah. It, there's a heavy implication that there would be a little bit of blood. But Sean Ryder doesn't have any blood anymore. <laughs> he looks very healthy in that, though, <laughs> in that film, up to the point he's shot to death. Well, he had to train very extensively in order to be able to run for five minutes. Mm. Well, he does make a very amazing noise uh, in the car chase scene. And you know it's him. And it actually sounds... <laughs> it's, it's, it's the F word. It sounds, like a, sound like him. it sounds like a demo for the song Dare. It's Dare! <laughs> it's a little See, bit... I'm now imagining that they had Johnny Vegas and Monkey as the henchmen. That would have been better. It's about time that in James Bond we had a ventriloquist dummy henchman. He doesn't have, like, doesn't have an operator. He's just sort of running around on his own. Mm. I'll get you, Bond! <laughs> I'll get you. Well, what Blakey from On the Buses. <laughs> I'll get you, Bond. Oh, I you, Bondy. It's, I mean, yeah, Sean, Sean Ryder, you know, and I, I like the fact that in that fight scene that Steed had with Sean Ryder and Eddie Izzard and all the, all the lackeys, and they're all wearing exactly the same because, you know, none of them have a personality of their own. Well, no, they don't. I don't see a problem with that. They're, they're hench people. Yeah, but... It's, you... like, it's like the traditional Bond hench people who all run around wearing orange boiler suits. It's, it's fine that they all dress the same. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with it in the fact that they're all trying to look perhaps inconspicuous, but their bosses are dressed as different coloured giant teddy bears. <laughs> so it's, but also I think it's mighty inconvenient that they left a mysterious map just casually under the wheel of their van as they yes. drove away. Yes, that is that is a minor plot hole. I mean, because it's perfectly folded as well. It should have just fallen out of someone's pocket as they ran into the van. That would have at least been a justifiable element of let's scarper. I believe that's something that's in the script as well. <laughs> and, um, and they filmed the scene, realised no one did it. it. Do you reckon that's what it is? They filmed the scene, realised no one had actually dropped the map, and went, all right, we'll just tuck it under the car, and we'll tuck it under the van, the van will drive off, and there it is. <laughs> they might have just had it open as well. Yeah, something, I mean, so, the fight scenes generally, I mean, I thought the effects of Uma fight, fighting Uma, two Umas, or yes. Tumor, might be easier. That's That's not nice. Well... Well, she's actually, in the script, she's called Bad Emma. Bad Emma. Yes. Naughty Emma. Don't pull faces. Naughty Emma. <laughs> this isn't the Kenneth Williams show. No. Um, but still. But I, yeah, those, uh, that, that doubling is actually very well done. And I think it's, it's sort of disguised, I think, with having one very good double and just careful editing. I don't think there's, I mean, there's only, I think, one shot where you can see both of the faces at the same time. And that's the the shot when uh, Steed is on the rooftop and counters both of them. Yes, and they both turn and look at him. And that's actually, a, it's a pretty, it's a quick shot, but it's it's done quick enough so that you don't see the jump. Mm. And I think we're seeing, I think, how good a, a technical director Chechik actually is. Mm. Well, he went on to direct uh, the series, episodes of the series Burn Notice and Chuck. I, I, I remember that he was seeing his name on episodes of Chuck, which is a spy series, and Burn Notice which is also the Spice series, so clearly that's something that he enjoys. Action scenes are plenty. Yeah, and and snappy characterisation, because mm. Chuck is very much a comedy action series. Although there was always one... Did he, uh, did he watch Chuck frequently? I watched the first few series when it was showing on Virgin 1. It, where, did, where did that go? Those are the days. Uh, it went into bankruptcy, I believe. Ah. <laughs> and Well, I, there was one scene that always thought was really odd in Chuck, where it was, I think his name's uh, I was going to say Gareth Hale, it's not Gareth Hale, uh, I want to say Adam Baldwin. 
<laughs> well, it's it was a character who it's an it was a character actor who's in Veep and Arrested Development. Tony Hale. Tony Hale, and he for some reason was in a couple of series. Oh, yes, I remember. He's in. What, he's only in a couple of episodes. Well, because then at the end, at his final scene. Spoiler alert! If you're someone's going to invest their time in Chuck, which is actually incidentally, it's a really good series and worth your time. So put your fingers in your ears, uh, over the top of your earphones, and avoid the last series. Because it's not very good. I haven't seen that one yet, actually. <laughs> Spoiler! Oh no, I know that it ends badly. Well, what are we going to say about Tony Hale? Tony Hale, there's a scene where they, there's a chap who's working for the bad guys, and he has infiltrated himself in this particular episode, or the last couple of episodes, in working for that big sort of PC World style company they all work for. Uh, the Nerd Herd, or whatever it's called. Uh, that's the name of the little cubby hole in the yeah. corner, but yeah. it's the name of the company is like Big, big Box City or something ridiculous yeah. like that. A good band, and Tony Hale's out the back with the with the guy, and the guy obviously is doing his more spy stuff first than anything else. And it was like Tony Hale's being relentlessly cruel to him for no reason, sort of saying something like, you know, pick it up or something. And the, and you're thinking, oh, this is not a person you say that to. And then and then he's rather brutally murdered. Yes, I was quite. I remember being really shocked when he was killed because it was done totally straight. Yeah, and he's just shot, like just shot through the heart. Yeah. And it's a it's a light series. There's there's action and there's violence in it, but it's never it's never too dark. But no, bang! I mean, he Buster, asked for Buster, it. Buster 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 Blue has his brains blown out. Buster Blood Vessel. He, <laughs> well, <laughs> but he, it, but the, I mean, he I mean he provokes it. We're about ten minutes into the film so far. <laughs> yeah, so, I know we're bouncing around, but hey, you know, it's um, it's that kind of film. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the one use of swearing, the one or the one use of non-PG swearing. I have a suspicion that was put in to bump the rating up. Mm. Because I know there is a concern that if you release a movie that has a PG rating or a G rating, particularly in the US, there is a perception that it's just for kids. The exception, I think, is probably Star Wars. There's some things that sort of known brands. Mm. A couple of the swear words in that are just obscene. But they're in alien language, so no one knows. Yeah, well, Klingons, you know. Mm. You can't even invite them to dinner. But um, what, yeah. Sydney Poitier should be the next film I ever great. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Actually, what, coming off on a world tangent, did you know that he's the Bahamas ambassador to the United Nations? I suppose that would explain why when our mutual friend, Mr. Sloman, who's featured on other podcasts on Pod Knows, uh, met him, that he was very good at just standing and smiling at a camera whilst the camera wasn't working for about five minutes. <laughs> so he's very good at posing. Well, he's, he's also a very successful actor. Yes. He's probably very familiar with being on camera. Guess who's coming to dinner? The Klingon Emperor, played by Sidney Poitier. Oh, oh, what a nuclear vessel. After where, hours. Where, where were we? Oh, he said he is swearing. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he's only, his only line. Clawing back, yes. Apparently he, um, again, what I, what I read was that his dialogue was generally very utilitarian and he wasn't over keen on just speaking boring. I'll get in the van, this, is, uh, this kind of sort of nonsense dialogue. He just said, well, why don't we just play it mute? Just play it with no dialogue at all, which he does for the, almost the entire film. And then at the, the very end of the film, where he has the, the, the big final battle with Emma and is about to fall to his death, hmm. he says, oh, F word. And it doesn't sound like his voice, and it's very, very obviously dubbed on in post-production. Hmm. And it, the, the acoustics of it are completely because it's supposed to be in this giant, giant chamber 
hundreds of feet off the ground, yet it sounds like you said it on the inside of a recording studio. I think at that rate, they could literally dubbed in anything that Eddie Izzard had previously said on his live recordings. Oh, Alcatraz! Oh, oh covered in bees! <laughs> yeah. which, oh. which would actually be appropriate. Is the answer jam? <laughs> that's... That's Piers Morgan. But in response to Eddie Izzard having used the term jam in an episode of I've Got News for You the week prior and going, oh, we all, you all laughed at that. And it's like, yeah, yeah that's because well, people, people like Eddie Izzard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that does seem like it's, it's an attempt just with that one use of the, the F word to bump it up from being a PG to being a 12 or, or a, um, a PG-13 in the US. Because, of course, all the 12-year-olds <laughs> that I knew at the time were aching to see, to hear those kind of swears. Well, it's, it's just the way that uh, the... I mean, at, at the time, the British Board of Film Classification was still being run, I think, by James Furman, mm. who was a man so... With, with such particular hobby horses, he wouldn't allow episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to be passed uncut because someone used a string of sausages like a pair of nunchucks. Well, I, I remember there wasn't there a... There was a famous headline in one of the papers. It must have been a tabloid, where it was something like Furman hard on sex films or something like that. It's It was just... I can imagine, yeah, someone was using an opportunity to extract Michael. And notable, after, as soon as he left office, he actually died very soon after he left office, uh, a whole flood of <laughs> previously banned video nasties emerged. Come on in, boys! Um, the, the, the Texas, I, was, I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the last day before it was officially released in the UK. And um, it's terrible. That's, that, 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 that would be another one for this podcast with someone explaining why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is any good because it's rubbish. The first one? The original, yes. Ooh, okay. And, and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is the worst film I've ever seen. So, listeners, that's your benchmark. Well, the, well of course, the, I mean, I, I've, I've seen a lot of good things in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the second film, and The Avengers. I see good things in all. I see good things in... Um, actually, in, in fairness, the, the, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is... It's quite impressive that they managed to get it all done with very few resources and apparently under absolutely appalling conditions. Um, so the achievement in completing the film is quite impressive. The film itself is garbage. Well. <laughs> so, slap. Well, on, on that bombshell. On, on that bombshell. After the opening sequence of Steed's trial run through the mock-up village, he's summoned to uh, headquarters to investigate the Prospero destruction. They decide that, given that Emma Peel is the only suspect, as she is seen on the security cameras blowing the place up, and then presumably escaping, they decide, well, let's go and make her another agent. Because I think it's on the understanding that She's so obviously the culprit that it couldn't possibly be her. And yet it clearly is her. <laughs> That's not me. Well, prove it. That was more or less the... more or less the. Oh, well, if it's not you, then I suppose you should probably go out there with, uh, with one of our agents then and just uh, investigate, yeah? Yes, it's, they say um, Mother, who's um, Steed's superior, played by Jim Broadbent, who's actually very good, I think. Why has he always got, like, weird white dandruff bits on his... On his um, the top of his suit, except in the scenes where it's been snowing. There's no white on his shoulder pads at all or anything when it's been snowing. But through the rest of the entire film, he's always got bits of white stuff on his on the top of his jacket. I couldn't honestly say. Mm. Given how particularly focused on costumes the rest of the production is, that is a bit of an oversight. 
And in terms of the costumes, I mean, the suits that, don't get me wrong, John Steed wears, Ralph, I'm going to call him Ralph, him and me. Oh, he'll, he won't like that. Well, well, he'll have to get into his in Bruce style character and come find me. But, yeah, I, the way that finds his character, his, his suits are fantastic and I respect the fact that they've kept in that tradition. But what's weird about his style is that they make a very conscious effort of saying that his suit's bulletproof and that his hat can sustain everything except darts thrown in them. And well, the darts don't go through his hat. Well, he says, well, enough for him to throw it away. He goes, you'll regret that. And then, Well, if you shoot bulletproof glass, it still breaks. Hmm. But, I mean, with his hat, he, sort of hit, he, he hits people with it, he swings it about the place, he puts it back on... But then as soon as it gets pierced, he's like, oh, I can't, I'm going to chuck this then. Well, in fairness, he does take off most of his clothes during the final fight. He does seem to get undressed. The first time you <laughs> see him, he's nude, practically. When Emma meets him for the first time, he is, he is naked. You see his he, He's in a sauna. We should, we should stress that. He's not just sort of walking down the road. A gentleman's sauna. Yes. Again, there's another cut scene there. Um, part of Emma's initiation into spying is to... Uh, penetrate a bastion of male privilege, I believe the line is. And that's um, entering a male a male gentleman's club um, and meeting Steve for the first time. And there is a cutscene actually where she, in the finished version of the movie, she seems to just walk straight past the attendant who's trying to stop her because he disappears. He actually gets thrown down a flight of stairs, which you can see in the trailer, which is visible on YouTube. Am I right in saying the chap who tries to block her is a man known as Will Smith, who was also in the thick of it? Uh, you would not be correct in that. Um, there's two people who look there are the two, same. I believe there's actually three, because I can't remember. Who, there's another one, an actor who was in the later series of Misfits on Channel 4. I think it might be him. Is it the guy who was in Is It Legal? I don't remember. I don't remember anything about Is It Legal other than their Mulder Storm. Was and he was in Coogan's Run in the I've episode. Never, I've never seen Coogan's. Not run. many people have. It was. He's. So what I'm referring to is there's a chap who doesn't want to let Emma Peel, Uma Thurman, in to this gentleman's club. And as far as I'm aware, because my research is very extensive, of course, <laughs> I just assumed it was this man. But I thought he was uh, an actor from the thick of it, but in actuality, I now now that I think about it, he is a bit part actor who I've seen in the likes of the sitcom IT from ITV, Is It Legal? And also played a bit role in the Coogan's Run series in an episode where Steve Coogan plays a character called Gareth Cheeseman. And he goes, and yeah, it's a little bit strange and dark and weird. But what I respect about that. Now, of course, 1998, the year after the Spice Girls really kind of came out, you know, girl power and independence and, and feminist rights really kind of bloomed from this and stemmed out of this. And so it was a big deal for Uma Thurman as Emma Peel to henceforth break the barriers of the bastion, as you say, of, what was it? Male privilege. Male privilege, exactly. Now privilege was assertive to everyone. And, and, and uh, Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm glad that she broke that barrier, only to then walk in on a nude man reading a paper. It really feels that she broke those barriers. I, th- I think, to be honest, they should have just given up after that. I think that was that was the the end of history, as far as you are concerned. That was the that was the peak of. I mean, that was the bell jar right there. That was 
Maya Angelou. That was... To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> yes. Is, uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's my favourite drink. Mm. Um, let's go back to uh, the actor you were talking about. It's, his name's Richard Lumsden. And yes, he was in Is It Legal and Coogan's Run. So, and... so well remembered. Has he been in anything since? He's been in quite a bit, actually. Uh, he seems to have mainly done a lot of television. He was in uh, Trolley, Sky Sitcom recently. He was in Remember Me, uh, the BBC One Ghost Story, broadcast late last year. He seems to be been in a few episodes of Doctors. He's in a lot of television. Uh, he, he had a small role in the film Sightseers a couple of years ago. What was the What was the name of his character in Sightseers? Uh, the character was called Rambler, That's according a, to IMDb. It's a weird name. Well, it's probably like nominative determinism, like Mr. Bun the Baker. Mr. Rambler. Uh, Mr. Mr. Rambler, who ironically... Um, was a hitchhiker rather than yeah. a rambler. I was going to say he was in a wheelchair, but that's, <laughs> that a little bit harsh. Well, speaking of wheelchairs, <laughs> that leads us on to Jim Broadbent's character. Jim Broadbent's character of Mother, played in the TV series by Patrick Newell. Yes, it's a, it's a nice little performance. It's, he doesn't really do a great deal, but he's like a sort of a friendlier, cosier M. It's it's good to see that the proactiveness of the of the of the film encouraging the diversity of disability uh, availability in yes. high end government jobs. Yes, you mentioned that um, with his second in command being blind, and she's introduced walking out onto a very high balcony, which does seem to be asking for trouble. And it, she walks out to the part of the balcony that doesn't have a. F- a railing. A railing. She does, because she, I remember she walks out and she actually is touching the railing in front of her to feel where she is. But the way it's angled, <laughs> she's standing right by the part which really should do with the rail. I th- it's possibly foreshadowing that uh, Mother knows that uh, Father is maybe going behind his back. Yes. He's trying to set her up for a fall, as it were. Indeed. That's not, that, was, that was off the top of my head. It's you're saying Jim Broadbent doesn't really get to do much, but he does have a very... His wheelchair is very quick, because when he goes out into the snow later on... <laughs> I know. He, he He's hurled into frame by several stagehands. He, he rockets across that screen. Should have been more Through heavy snow, I'm not quite sure... I mean, again, it's the Avengers, so there's always the, the, the edge of fantasy to whatever's going on. But that's an interesting choice of uh, shot. Hmm. And and then, and then Fiona Shaw because she's a baddie because she's the villain because father actually isn't everything she seems then makes her she seems quite nasty right straight from the off I think it's almost a, it's almost a twist that that she is the villain because she's so obviously guilty you would expect it to be somebody else it's very much like the uh, the case with saying well it can't be Emma because she's obviously she's obviously the only suspect the same way when it comes to finding out who the traitor is, it can't be Father, because she's creepy, she dresses in black, she's hanging around with with the villain. It clearly can't be her. Oh, wait, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing. It, there's a lot of uh, duality throughout the film. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a, a good Emma, and you've got a naughty Emma. Sorry. Bad Emma. Bad Emma. You've got Father, you've got Mother, which, but the roles are reversed... And in terms of gender, and in terms of in terms of who's who can you trust and who can't you trust, you've got Mr. Fines playing John Steed, but he also happens to look like a character from Perfect World, the sitcom in which was a character played by Paul K. So that Paul K. looked like a greasy car 
greasy car salesman. He sells he greasy looks like cars. A greasy car. <laughs> looks like he a... looks like a greasy used car salesman. Mm. John Steed looks in the in the film looks very much like a an old fashioned button down city gent, and that's obviously deliberate. But in the TV show, Patrick McNee was much was more dandyish. He wore the suits more like a second skin, and he was very comfortable and very relaxed. And but Ray finds is very stiff. I actually remember my mother, my own mother, who isn't a mustachioed man, noting a, seeing a publicity still at the time and saying that he looked like he was wearing his dad's clothes, mm. and he does. There's there's a there's a, there's a stiffness and a, a rigidness that should have maybe been assuaged over the course of the movie. It would have made more sense for there to be a kind of arc with their characters that Steve starts off very stiff and by the book and Emma is very you know, iconoclastic and fighting, uh, beating down barriers for the sake of the barriers being there and they would influence each other over the course of the movie. Steve would maybe unbend a little, Emma would appreciate there's, there's something in you know, following the rules sometimes, there's a reason they're there hmm. and it's because they eventually come to complement each other so perfectly as I remember reading in the book it's, Steve knows everything about the aristocracy Emma knows everything about everything else and in World of the Avengers, that's a 50-50 split. Yeah. It's... I, in terms of their relationship throughout the film, it does seem like the fact that she's been asked to join them, despite the fact she's obviously at this... From, she's obviously guilty. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's quite clearly the main culprit. Uh, he doesn't seem that fussed at all throughout the entire proceedings, and I think... It's a little bit... That does make it a relationship you can't really invest in from the get-go because there's no real logic to their... to to them hanging out, essentially, other than... Uh, there's no reluctancy on anyone's part, for starters. There's no John C. going... Even though he's going, well, I might not trust you. But it, it, it should be a little bit more shifty, presumably. It should be like... Yeah. There should be more suspicion behind yeah. his words. I do think that they are... But I think both of them are really fine and Rafe finds. Ralph. That, that's how you say it. So, so Ralph. Um, it's, it's, it's spelt Rafe. Um, it's, they, it's, they... No, it's not. <laughs> it's spelt R-A-L-R-A-L-P-H. That's Ralph. Yep. yep. R-A-L-P-H, Rafe. Rafe Spall. Ralph finds. Ranulf. You can't trust Rafe Spall. He was in Prometheus. But he was also in the Shadowline. Uh, I rest my case. Shadowline's ace. Shadowline ends with the... Oh, it's superintend- spoilers. Spoilers. Spoilers for the Shadowline. Although, really, you should have seen it by now. It does turn up on London Live a lot, if you live in London. Why? It's, that's not live. Because it's set in London. For the same reason that the donkeys get shown all the time. For no reason at all. So will they repeat old London news? Because that was in they London. Might, might, well, given that they're showing Drop the Dead Donkey again. London's, London Tonight from... 1992, I think. That's the real vintage year for regional news. Well, I'd like to see repeats of The Big Breakfast... Actually, I like to say, well, that should be on all four. Yeah. That should be on all four, because The Big Breakfast was great. And, yeah, repeats of old... It's in some they bought it back anyway for the reunion. They could do TFI Friday. They could bring. They could show who's... Um, don't forget your toothbrush. Well, I'd love to say, don't forget your toothbrush again. Hmm. That, that cured me once. What, from... I was very, very ill, and I watched Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, and I felt a lot better. Oh. It actually cured me. That and um, Total Recall that was on straight after it. Mm. A little insight into my past. Well, uh, for now, all we know, that channel is not all four. 
because there's not everything on it. No, that's true. How did we get onto this? Oh, the shadow line. Yes, the, yes, the end of the shadow line, which I won't spoil, but it has. It's ludicrous. It's, I, it's a series that is very convinced of how important it is, mm. and it winds up telling you nothing that you don't already know. Yeah, not like the Avengers at all. Except the Avengers isn't trying to t- illuminate some truth about the world we live in now. It's trying to be a fun adventure movie. I don't mind <laughs> that it doesn't have any subtext. That's fine. It's not trying to. There's a lot of sexual innuendo for something without any subtext. But it's not trying to say, oh, well... Uh, uh, well, well it, it seems ridiculous to draw... But actually, it's not that so ridiculous to draw comparisons with the Shadowline, because the Shadowline is so mannered and so stylized, and everyone has such weird made-up names... They might, they might as well call the villain Frederick Moneybags. Well, August De Winter. <laughs> or... Well, in the Avengers, that's fine. That's the that's the that's the Avengers land rule that people are named after the things that they're obsessed with. <laughs> there's one episode of the TV show where there's um, the villain is uh, Ronnie Barker, who's obsessed with cats, and I think he's called something like Mister Tiddles. Right, and it's 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 that kind of level of ridiculousness. So what was Sean what was Sean Ryder's character uh, in the script called? Um, I can look in the script and tell you. Um, it's probably, he's probably called Sean, I think. <laughs> Assuming that his character is even given a name. I, I can't really remember it. I really hope it's Dare! Oh, here we go. Oh no, he's not, in the, he's not uh, credited in the front. Although weirdly they do credit... All the, all the back. Oh no, hang on. Uh, his name is Donovan. I wonder how they came to that conclusion. Uh, it does say at the, at the very bottom of the, the Dramatis Personae, because mm. it's that kind of book. The above credits are not all-inclusive and do not necessarily reflect final billing, which is good, because out of the dozen or so actors credited, two of them are in, in the released film. Which, uh, which, and who are they? Sir August de Winter's butler and a scientist he tortures Oh, later on in the movie, well, they both, clearly, of, both of whom disappear. Well, they clearly didn't try hard enough. But then again, speaking of characters who disappear, of course we were saying about Father being the overall villain. And the la- Am I right in saying the last scene, overall villain above well, August yeah, Winter? Yeah. No. Well, she... She's, she's a trait. She's, she's working for Sir August. She's not his but, paymaster or anything. No? No. Well, I lost that. But, <laughs> but, but then again... Where did you get that idea from? Well... The fact that the fact that she's the she's in the government, so she's the leak that essentially is allowing for him to get away with it. So in, yes, in that in that con- context, it seems to me that she was she's, not necessarily his boss, but she she's was... she's, su- she's supplying him with information. But remember, that there's there's the scene which reveals that um, she's in cahoots with Sorgas, where they're playing croquet, as everyone in England does. And um, he uh, he says, "Oh, ah, uh, uh, father, do you think we should?" Uh, I'm not going to do the accent. I don't, I'm not going to disgrace myself any further. Sorry, I thought he just had heartburn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> too, too, many, too many Scotch eggs. Oh. Uh, what is it? I was trying to remember Tullock's tea cakes. And another fun Scotch oh, food. just got for me a Tullock's. <laughs> I've just had a deep fried Mars bar. Mm. But, um, my, yeah. but he, he cheats at croquet, which I think is a nice little detail. And, mm. it, and we see him cheating in a really weirdly composed shot with a wide-angle lens. There's an extreme close-up on him stamping on father's balls, father's croquet ball, which obviously father can't see because father is blind and so probably shouldn't be playing croquet. It's either that or table tennis. Mm. But uh, father says, ah, father, shall we double the bet? And she says, oh, well, I could never refuse you anything. And I think that 
that actually very economically sets up the power dynamic between the two of them, that he has some kind of hold over her. It's obviously going to be a creepy hold. Well, well, seeing the Avengers as if if you see the Avengers as a feminist piece, like I do, I would argue that in in the at the end she actually holds all the power between the two of them in the dynamic because she's the one in the government who is allowing him to have the information that allows him to then wreak havoc. However, the justification is as a villain she's not allowed to have the upper hand, and therefore it she's not in fact then apprehended by a fully a fully assertive, dominant male. She's in fact, she's at facts at the end caught by Jim Broadbent in his wheelchair, and 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 subsequently emphasised so by Fiona Shaw's character uh, father because she turns around and mocks him for being in the wheelchair. You're half the man. But then subsequently, that's the last time we see her. We don't know what happens to her, or if she's or nothing. We nothing. Ha- we don't know what happens. I think you've missed part of the movie. Really, what happens to her? Did you not see the bit with the hot air balloon? Yeah. Was she in that? Yes. She was, well, she was, obviously, she was steering it. So why did Jim Broadbent just let her go? Because there was, uh, Bad Emma was there and he, she kicks over his wheelchair. <laughs> she's on the floor with him. No, there are two, because uh, Bad Emma is holding, I don't remember now, Bad Emma is carrying Good Emma and father and mother struggle, mother falls over and then Steed comes out and chases after and and father mother says oh steed the balloon the balloon and father is trying to make her good her escape with bad emma and the unconscious good emma oh but good emma fights back and um father get they father finally realizes that in fact she's blind and shouldn't be doing all these things that sighted people yeah find second nature including driving a hot air balloon which doesn't even have a window <laughs> which seems rather yeah. careless um, and um, it collides with the headquarters of Wonderland Weather, which has suddenly moved from the Lloyd's building in the city to Trafalgar Square. You know why I missed that? I think it's because there was too much going on in the scre- on the screen. <laughs> there was snow, there was fire, there was continuous cut shots between land and air, and various different locations, and cutting back to various different characters in this sort of very brief and somewhat bizarre five-minute action sequence that preceded the, once again, messy... Denouement. Denouement. Messy <laughs> fight between De Winter and Steed that was counterbalanced with Thurman and... Izzard. 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 Swearing little Izzard. Dangling from a string. Izzard the lizard. And, yeah, I, that's probably why I missed that. But, um... I must say, though, I was aside from the fact that I did find a lot of the action scenes quite messy, I, in terms of just too much going on, I would say that it was very nice in terms of the soundtrack to hear a use, in terms of the lightning effect, a uh, good use of the BBC Sound Effects Library Volume 21, Track 30, which you don't often hear anymore in television shows, let alone films. So I could argue that that's a nice hark back to the 60s, to, um, you could. Uh, the the creator of the Avengers, Sidney Newman, later moved to the BBC, so it's obviously a connection there. Mm. It's, I mean, for example, I mean it, that probably explains their connection back to the sixties in terms of set design, because you know back in those days, you used to get the wobble when the door shut and things so, like that. So, I mean, it, to be fair, it was it was I I reckon I reckon that you know, for example, the way the padded cell wobbles 
when Emma Peel's there and she collapses. It's actually merely symbolic of the fragility of her mind, presumably, one would suspect. Um, I think it's more that there's a, that's a scene that doesn't need to be in the movie. <laughs> mm. Because we are, we are jumping around quite a bit, but there is a sequence where they go back to... So do they, so it's fine. Again, um, what's, what's the name of Sir August's house? They go and visit Sir August at his house several times, and the second time uh, Emma is drugged, and uh, Sir August is going to touch her in a bad way. Mm, as opposed to a good way. Well, like a, like a nice hug. Yeah, a slap on the arm. That's not appropriate anymore, George. You should, you should stop doing that. Well, I, I'm just following what Sean Connery does in his films. I really wouldn't. Mm. Mm. Um, in all I've, of his I've, films. I've, I've recently rewatched the 60s Bond movies. Boy, have they dated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you can almost not do anything in them now. Yeah. You can't murder people. <laughs> you, can't even, you can't even throw someone under a snowplow anymore. No, what's and, the... and then make a joke. What's the world coming to? We, to, uh, to be fair, there are still a lot of things we can do in um, in Her Majesty's Secret on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So that's I know that's not Connery, but in terms of Bond films of that era, well, that's because it's one of the be- probably the best Bond film. Really? Oh, that's that's a conversation for another day. It's really not. I think most Bond fans will put that very high on their list. Who who like that film? Yes, it's it's a very very good film. The Bond fans, the Bond fans who put that high on their list will put that high on the list. Bond fans in general will put that high on their list. Hmm. James um, Bond fans or just Bond? The fans of Basil and Bond, both the writing paper and the Russ Abbott character. Mm-hmm. Um, fans of the uh, the music group Bond. Bondi Beach. No, that's something else. Ah. So, in terms of the scene that we were just talking about, then, am I to assume that? Oh, the uh, yes, Sir August's house, where she runs, she runs away. She recovers sort of enough from having been drugged to uh, make an escape, and then starts running around the inside of. Sir August's mansion, which appears to be an Isha painting. Yes. Now there's a re- and there's a reason for that, sort of, which is that the name of his house is Hallucinogen Hall. Right. Okay. And I think the suggestion is that it's that the whole house makes people go crazy. Again, it's an Avengerish idea. Mm. The idea of a, sort of a house that makes you go insane, like a kind of a cross between the Overlook Hotel and a fun house. Mm. But it doesn't have a place in the movie. And also, I don't think he would have got a contractor to do to set all that up for him who wouldn't have gone mad, presumably. He would have already been mad. So, so you're saying it's sort of an H.H. H. Holmes kind of thing where maybe he was killed so that, that more rooms could be added throughout. He kept on hiring on new mad contractors and then killing them so that he could have more parts of the house without everyone knowing. Well, it's like, a, it's like building your own memory palace. Mm. That's a little intellectual uh, joke, well, joke for the listeners there. Well, it's it's interesting because I think the first time we see uh, one of the long and winding, well, not winding, but long and straight uh, hallway kind of area uh, when he's pumping his organ in, in near the beginning Hilarious. of the, the it's a it's a very funny scene and <laughs> um, uh, when he's when he's uh, got playing his organ over. Uma Thurman's head. Yes, I think that I think that shot where he's where they go and visit him the first time that's repurposed from the pre-titles scene. It looked a lot to me like a part of a building interior that was used in Return to Oz. It could well be where they all all the things that they touch take them to this place like where 
everything's disappeared or something. Like, or they're, they're touching all the gold part. They're touching all variations of gold and things like that. There's a lot of touching. There's a lot of affectionate <laughs> touching. In, in Return to Oz, there's this, there's this amazing... It's a, that's a, now, that's a film. I think people like Return to Oz. It's just that it's very scary. <coughs> it's, it's, it's a children's film that's completely unsuitable for children. It's, it, well, there's, a, there's a fantastic scene in it where, near the end, spoilers, where they're trying to get everyone, bring everyone back who's, for whatever reason, been turned into various ornaments that are part of the oh, yes, Gnome King's now. collection. Yes. And that, there's that, where they filmed that is very reminiscent of one of the hallways in Hallucinogen Hotel or whatever. Hallucinogen Hall. It could very well be the same location. I, I do remember that um, Return to Oz was filmed in the UK. It's uh, almost certainly Pinewood. But, um, and obviously the Avengers was filmed entirely in the UK because it's the Avengers and it has to be. Because you can't... Yeah, actually, <laughs> going off on a bit of a tangent, when uh, the new Avengers was being made, um, they could only make it with foreign financing. Most of the series was a French co-production, which meant they shot a couple of episodes in France. But they set them in Paris, so it could look like Paris, and it's great because Paris is beautiful. But towards the end of the series, they were running out of money, and they struck a new deal with Canadian financiers. So they had to shoot a couple of episodes in Toronto, which looks like nothing. Yeah, that sounds about right. Which brings me to my, my mild sense of concern that London looks very empty. In fact, the entire... Everything except the characters in the film. There are no extraneous people anywhere. There's no traffic. There's nothing. No. There's no people walking down the road. No one is affected. Thank, luckily, no one's affected by the weather because no one is there in London. No, they're, no, they've gone. <laughs> they're, all, they're, all, they're all out. Yeah. I, get, that's, I think that's something that's a deliberate carryover from the series where London will always look empty. And I think that was just a practical measure. And I think in the movie it's, it's also partly a practical measure because it means they don't have to have a whole load of extras. They don't have to get the special costumes because of the whole modern 60s aesthetic. They just film at four in the morning. Or they just keep the streets empty and, dub, and uh, do the sound later. Uh, which is you know, almost mm. the same way they did 28 Days Later. How do, how do you do empty Westminster Bridge? You just ask people to stop very, very politely and wait for a couple of minutes. Although I had some of those scenes, they, they filmed very early in the morning where it was kind of just daylight, so it was they could just get the shots where it was empty enough. Yes, but even so, it, I mean, central London, there is always traffic at every hour of the day. And um, I think, yeah, I think they filmed early in a Sunday morning in the middle mm. of summer. But even then, there were people coming out of clubs, there were taxis, there were a couple of buses. They would just say, and the, because they were filming on digital cameras, it meant that they could just quickly get shots. Do, do, you, do you reckon the, the? Do you reckon if you kept the? I'd like to see this. Do you reckon if they kept the actual sound that was occurring in the backdrop of? It'd be probably be a bit like this. <laughs> but just I'm, I'm on the toilet at the moment. <laughs> but, um, do you reckon that the the original audio in the background of the scenes going over the bridge? It's just couples arguing and, and people. Oh, you want you sleep with her? You. And then, you know, like, like sort of just women kind of, you know, having a cat fight at three in the morning, coming out of a club, going, oh, you bitch, like that. Oh, I can't imagine anything else. And, and it was, I bet it was like the Hacienda there. <laughs> well, it wasn't too far from Vauxhall, and there's a lot of loud clubs there. I went to one once. I went to a club once. It was a roller skating club, and I had to have earplugs because it was so loud. And my ears are so sensitive. Oh, I bet you were like Heather Graham and Boogie Nights there. Well, in a sense, you know, <laughs> taking taking oh. your dress off in one go, 
Lying around, lying on a sofa with naked apart from my roller skates. With Marky Mark. With Marky Mark. Yeah. With Minky Monk. From Entourage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone's, everyone's favourite actor. Mm. I've always thought so. Mm. He's so good that he's exactly the same in everything. Mm. Especially, have you, again, a wild tangent. Have you seen The Happening? The M. Night Shyamalan film he did? No. Where he, uh, plays, he plays a science teacher and he's so credible. Mm. Well, I... You know, if Mark Wahlberg walked in to my school and said, Hi, I'm a scientist. Because I imagine that's the accent he'd put on. That's very good. Mm. How do you like them apples? I know that's not him. <laughs> I know that's not him, just to clarify. That is that is the right city, though. Mm. Well, I'm from Boston. <laughs> I watch Ellie McBeal. In the departed. I'm, I'm turning into Vic Reeves. I'm seeing him on Wednesday. And... <laughs> And, and the other one. Does his well, wife know? <laughs> why, yeah, you uh, Yes, so... Where are we? Oh, who knows? Briny. <laughs> well, something I want to ask you about... Something I want to ask you about is... You're talking about Isha. Or Esha. I should have said Esha, yes. MC Esha. A brimful of Esha on the 45. But... It's a very popular hit of the day. Set design and... The location were particularly good. I like the fact that I like the maze. I thought the choice of building for Hilsnishen House. It's Blenheim Palace. Yeah. And in terms of the and these was was the lead up to that, that long and wide with that long road that led up to that. Is yes. that all correct or is that filmed somewhere else? I I don't know to be honest. Um I can imagine that it's, it's around there. But I honestly couldn't say. Am I right in saying that not too far from there, they also filmed some rather good, decent scenes from Theatre of Blood? You're moving out of my comfort zone in terms of uh, film models. I don't know too much about Theatre of Blood. Which Diana Rigg was in. See, of course. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, because I, I'm pretty convinced that somewhere not too far outside of London, where there are those long, amazing roads leading to big, lovely buildings... And there can't be that many of them just outside of London, in theory. That the Diana Rigg in Theatre of Blood, without giving too much away, in part, part of her characterization is that she's a makeup artist and they're filming some scene and a policeman goes to talk to her, detective goes to talk to her. And is in fact Dean, I think, in Hendred as well. He is in it, actually. Yeah, yes. so everything's connecting, you see. It all connects back to Ian Hendry. And yeah, the. Uh, this scene, is, yeah, it's got this lovely, long, winding... I keep using winding. It's, it's long... Uh, you know what it's got? I was listening to the Beatles recently. The long and winding toad. And... Well, careful, because we have to pay PRS if you want to start singing. That's why I said toad. Good. And uh, uh, actually, the way... Because it's, it's the frog song. Actually, the way you can get around PRS is if you call them PPS, because that's a different company. Yeah, then they just put that at the end of the letter. Mm. Some people... Well, that's PPS. Anyway, so... <laughs> But yeah, uh, so it all connects back to Theatre of Blood, but I'm pretty sure that that kind of area. So, you know, if, if we went back in time by, say, 25 years, Diana Rigg would have been standing there not too far from where they got out of the car. 1990? Well, 19, no, 1998, 20, minus 25 years. 1973. Oh, I see. Right. Isn't it? So back, yes, but back a further 25 years from a time when we already aren't. Oh no! I meant from 1998. I figured oh, we were. I, see. I figured whilst we're talking about this, we are in 1998. No, 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 
no, that no time doesn't work like that. I thought when you press the record button, you can be anywhere you like. It's not one of those magic record buttons, unfortunately. This isn't Jamie and his magic dictaphone. So, in, would you agree with me that it's a, quite a messy third act? It's it does have pro- it does have problems because of the, because of the way the the production ends up running with Steed finding the map that's just left under the car in the script it's, it flies out of Bailey's pocket as they drive away so it's sort there's sort of a, a tokenist attempt to have it fall into his lap rather than him being handed it effectively and then so oh this is a map to the villain's secret base lucky yeah that's it's very handy and then we have the 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 reveal as Steve goes through the archives with a cameo by Patrick McNee, of course. Ooh, his last film appearance. His not, well, you joke. It's not his last film role, mm. and it's not a film appearance because his character is invisible. Was he? Yeah. I didn't I know, notice I know, that. I know, well, you didn't notice the, the whole sequence involving a hot air balloon, so... Well, actually, I say, I say appearance because at one point he does, just to emphasize that he's invisible... We, show... we can see him. Yeah, we can see him. <laughs> he stands in front of a uh, slide projector, Ooh. and his sort of outline in, in a glassy, transparent form could be seen. Mm. Not looking a great deal like Patrick McGowan, to be honest. Pa- good, because it's Patrick McNee. Well, yeah, I suppose that would be handy. <laughs> if it was Patrick McNee, he would just force himself visible. I like the idea, though, that Patrick McGowan makes a cameo as Patrick McNee's shadow. <laughs> Oh, he would. He'd just do that to mess with our minds. Well, you know, anything after Braveheart. To make us, to make to make us. Oh, yeah. Was that the same year, ninety eight? No, that was a few years earlier. I was going to say because the contrast of you know where people are. It's a shame, really. Yes, I suppose so. Mm. But he also, I mean, the the fun fact about Patrick McGowan is he was the murderer so often in Columbo they made him executive producer. And the fact that Mel Gibson at one point was offered the role of John Steed in my research. Yes, that's true. Imagine that Mel Gibson and Patrick McGowan working together on the Avengers film. Oh dear. Well, who's Patrick McGowan playing? The King of England. (laughs) Reprising his role from Braveheart. Reprising his role from Braveheart is a man who's been dead for 800 years. Yeah, well he's been been sleeping. (laughs) He he was frozen by by one of Augusta Winter's freeze rays in, yes. the, in the past in the past yeah. yeah he's also got a time machine because that's that because you know when when you've got teddy bears inconspicuously walking around your uh, not, industrial they're, plant they're walking in fairness they're walking around offices that Sir August actually owns so they're what do you reckon there was probably like one guy going is this compulsory I, I just literally I'm, I'm the janitor I don't want no it's only the people at the meeting who are dressed as teddy bears we don't inevitably we don't see anyone else there is no one there who is not involved in the story. Shouldn't shouldn't have there been? Well, don't you think, from a from a narrative point of view, it might have made more sense to rather than rather Stephen Peel walking in afterwards and finding the two dead bears? Wouldn't it have made at least one of two things should have happened? Maybe they infiltrate prior to the meeting and are both disguised as bears, and then they do a little tense moment where they're sitting next to the people who do then get killed and it's, oh, oh, you know, oh, we're, we're in a dangerous spot here. Or got in the suits of the people who were murdered, albeit it would have been a bit bloody, but got in the suits that would have been murdered so that they are then, <laughs> so that they can perhaps progress further <laughs> in the industrial plant without then getting into the situation they ended up in. Well, in the second case, 
they know that the, because all the bears are different colours, they would the, the villains would know that those bears that are those colours are actually supposed to be dead. So and, they would stand out as being imposters. And John Steen would get caught up because he'd, he'd insist on leaving his bowler hat on top of the teddy bear. <laughs> well, of course he would, because it's adorable. <laughs> Imagine, thinking, I think that would have that would have been funny. That would have been stupid, but it would have been funny. <laughs> and the, um, the 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 bear that Emma Ste- that uh, Emma Peel's wearing is wearing a an oversized leather cat suit. Yeah, it's it's tight, but with, it, with a but, it's, but with a teddy bear heads together and the paws with no fingers. <laughs> She's wearing a corset. <laughs> Like the teddy bear's wearing a corset and a bra and a wig. <laughs> again, I think we're just drifting into the realms of your mind. Or Sean, Con- Sean Connery's mind. He'd love it. He should. He should have been a tartan bear. He's dressed as a black bear. He should have been a tartan bear because Whoa. he ends up coming out at the end with pipers behind him. Mm. When, he, when, he's, when he breaks into the the, um, the council of ministers to say, yeah. "Now is the winter of your discontent," foreboding the Scottish referendum decision. Yes, because he's uh, defeated, mm. as all the evil Scottish uh, people were. But <laughs> he gets a little bit power mad. Yeah. Like the salmon. And. Yeah. Salmon, of course, does very well in water. Mm. And uh, where does Sir August Space turn out to be? Under the Serpentine in Hyde Park. Now, I must say, that was a very cool shot. When they're. And that, I believe that was used a lot in the publicity, was, was the moment when. Steed and Peel are in their big walking balls across the across the surface of the serpentine. That's great. I thought that's yeah. a really good shot. Again, that's a very Avengerish image. That's the only shot. <laughs> that's the only proper image that I really went. You know, I like that, and it's kind of sexy. You know, it's kind of like he's in the suit. She's finally wearing. That's the first time we actually properly see her, the good her in that attire. Yes. Oh, she's re- she's reclaimed. That side of herself again. This is the sort of stuff that you could have done there. Yeah, with her reclaiming the uh, the dark side of herself. Maybe seen with her putting the clothes on. You know, we're really proper. Literally, see a transformation, and maybe taking the old clothes off. If anyone would like to see that kind of scene, I'd refer to you to the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, where she plays Venus. Another film that was a famous disaster. We must talk about that at some point. Well, if you're going to twist my arm, I. I really like that film. I remember it weirdly having two TV premieres in Britain. It was shown. It was definitely shown once, and then a couple of years later, TV are oh, coming this autumn. TV premiere of the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I thought this has been on before. I, th- I think I was assuming that people wouldn't remember because it's the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. It's. I find it unusual that I mean because Terry Gilliam's always perceived Brazil, Time Bandits, and the Adventures of Baron Munchausen as the three ages of man. Time yeah. Bandits as... Childhood. Childhood. Brazil as middle age and... The Vince of Baron Munchausen as old age. Yeah. So, old, I mean, and for me, they're all completely different films, but very equal in terms of quality and standard. So I thought it was a bit of a shame that The Adventures of Baron Munchausen didn't get the respect it received. And although, yeah, as I say, it's the last of the trilogy and you've got a cast of... Literally thousands in it, um, all particularly good for the most part. Lovely to see Uma Thurman and the perfect introductionary, uh, introductionary role, I would say, Oliver Reed as her husband and everything else. But in relation to the Avengers, I would also say that this is certainly a role that precedes Kill, the Kill Bill films in terms of strong archetypal 
feminist role. Yes, I agree. But it was also a film that killed her career for the next five years. Well, she needs to trade up anyway in time for the for the for the big return role. Having done the Avengers, she now had two major underperforming summer movies in a row because, of course, she was in Batman and Robin the previous year, which made about twice as much money, or three times as much money in America as the Avengers did, and yet it's regarded as a big flop. It mm. wasn't. It was. A, it was a hit. It's just that it's not a very good film. Whereas the Avengers made very little money. But it's a pretty decent film. I mean, I think, in all honesty, it's only really maybe a one script draft just to smooth out all the, the extra plot threads and just, keep, just unify everything together um, away from being you know, a, a, a really strong script. It needs a bit more depth. It needs more of a unifying vision. And it needs, it needs a writer with a bit more distance because... Don McPherson, I think, just threw in a lot of elements that felt, oh, this feels like the Avengers, this feels like the Avengers. And they do, but they don't cohere. It needs just a single sweep through. The structure of it, I think, is very strong. But it just needs that polish, that once-over. And it's I mean, it's a very well-directed film. It's, it's very pacey. It's very well-edited, I think. The actors, I think, need better direction. Um, the chemistry between them is a bit Go off, get off the set and keep walking. <laughs> That's a good direction. Um, I just think, they, you know, they just need to be a little bit looser, a little bit more relaxed. It feels a bit too mannered in yes. a lot of places. Do you think it would have made a difference had Mr. Fines been one of those people who perhaps approached the role saying, I'm not going to watch any of the Avengers. I'm going to take it on an original role. I might have a chat with Patrick McNee, but I'm not going to watch his performance. I can imagine that's that would have been his approach, not to to, to avoid being influenced by other performances. I, I can imagine that he would approach uh, his Shakespearean characters in a similar way, like not going back and watching Olivier playing a particular character, or Patrick Stewart, perhaps, but creating his own vision of the character from the script up. And that's a perfectly reasonable approach, but I don't think it really works or that his, his choices don't particularly work mm. with the way the film should really be orientated. I, like most of the actors involved, more or less, I'm fond of most of their work. Rafe Fiennes. I knew we got there in the end. Well, you know, that's, that's the, that's been the smoking gun for the whole recording. But, yeah, well, Chekhov's gun, I should say. But, yeah, I... I mean, I respect... I preferred his later roles, and I thought he was very good in the somewhat underrated Red Dragon, for example. I very much enjoyed his role in In Bruges. I thought he was good in his early years when he played Rigsby in Rising Damp. And I think with Uma Thurman, I respect her roles in Kill Bill, and, of course, she was great in Pulp Fiction, and I've always thought she's... Yeah, it's pretty hot. She's kind of cool. And Gattaca, as well. But I, I, I think Sean Connery was miscast, in my honest opinion. I think, do you, I mean, are we to assume that they wrote the, the part with him in mind, hence all the very Scottish elements to it? I think that he may have come onto the project at a very early stage and the role was then tailored for him. Do you think there would have been a better person to play that role, ultimately, in retrospect? I think he's ideal for the role, to be honest. I, he, it needs that kind of big energy that he brings to it, that really overpowering charisma 
because he's he's the diabolical mastermind with the evil plan. <laughs> and it needs that kind of big pantomimers. And I can I can I'm sure there are other actors who would have been terrific in the role, but I think that he's just perfect. Now you you're a big Bond fan. Is that fair? That is that's Can a I? very very true statement. I am a very big fan of James Bond. So you might be a little bit biased, anyway. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, a young Pierce Brosnan, playing a, a sort of henchman to villains in in his one of his very early roles in The Long Good Friday. But I couldn't think of any villainous roles that Roger Moore had been in. Well, he's played unsympathetic characters, um, protagonists, but uh, not necessarily likable people. Um, as a a film called North Sea Hijack, which is almost a reaction to his Bond character, where he's a kind of secret commando who is sent in to liberate an oil rig that's been taken over by Anthony Perkins and his henchmen. And the character is a caricature of Bond in saying, if Bond behaved the way he did in, in the films, in real life, this is what he'd be like. And the result is that he's a really obnoxious, unpleasant man who openly hates women. Yeah. And he's presented as being, he's an, he's an awful person, but he is very good at his job. And he is very good at liberating oil rigs from Anthony Perkins. The other uh, performance that I, that I think people who know Rochemore really ought to see is The Man Who Haunted Himself, um, which he made uh, right after think, finishing The Saint in 1969, where it's, it's one of those doppelganger films. It's a very kind of a, a worn trope where he's uh, a, a, an uptight businessman is in a car accident he appears to die on the operating table but wakes up and realises that he needs to embrace life more but as he does so he feels that there is someone else trying to take his life away from him and it turns out that it is in fact a doppelganger also played by Roger Moore and it's a very interesting performance because he's playing someone very stiff very enclosed very rigid in their personal attitudes, as who slowly unbends over the course of the film. But then, the, the, as one can imagine, I don't think this is really a spoiler, but inevitably there is a point where the two versions of the character meet. Mm. And the one who has been stiff and has been unbending collapses in a nervous breakdown, in this bout of psychosis. And it's very upsetting to watch, because it's Roger Moore having a breakdown who is the, you know, the spirit of calmness and urbanity, of unruffled charm, if he's going to pieces, you know it's serious. And it's a really terrific performance in a largely forgotten film, which I highly recommend. It's out on DVD. Hmm. And that's the closest he's been to a villain? I would say so. I mean, um, I'm, I haven't seen everything he's done. Are um, you sure? Well, he is in Spice World. Oh, I'm very excited about that. Oh, well, that makes one of you. Mm. But uh, Daniel, I mean, just to complete the set, Daniel Craig was a villain in The Adventures of Tintin. And what about George Lazenby? Mm. I think he was a villain to his own career. Um, he was advised by his agent to stop playing Bond after one movie because the character was going to you know, become yesterday's thing, man. It's the 70s now. So he turned up to the premiere with a big beard and long hair, which attracted some criticism from the producers I believe and uh, then quit his contract and that I don't know if it ended up with him being blackballed but it certainly wrecked his career mm. and uh, it's contributed to him now being regarded as a non-actor which is a bit of a shame because I think he's actually very good
Well, it's lucky that the Avengers didn't do that to Sean Connery. No, no, he had several more terrible films to make before then. I was, oh, no, it's not a terrible film. It's great. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, he did make uh, one more hit with uh, Entrapment, of course, which, uh, again, he also spends a lot of time lusting after a woman who's much younger than he is. Hmm. Well, I think we're going to ra- have to wrap it up there, George. Thank you very much for making time to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, in summary, out of ten, The Avengers? Yes. I agree. I hope you found that as fascinating and illuminating as I did. We've had some tweets in response on Twitter. Dominator Rago has asked, Would a director's cut, restoring the footage Warner Brothers hacked out, improve the film, or is it fundamentally flawed? Well, as I think the discussion pointed out, there's a lot to salvage there. It's not fundamentally flawed, and certainly a director's cut, if one were to be authorised, as Jeremiah Chichik has in fact offered to do, it would certainly improve the film's reputation. I leave it to you to make that decision. M.A.W. Holmes asked, Is this film really responsible for the Marvel film adopting a different name? To quote Kevin Feige, as I discovered on Wikipedia, he said that decisions like that aren't made lightly, and there are lots of marketing research, lawyers and things that get into the mix on it. So, a nice non-committal response there from a Hollywood producer, although Disney did say that the title was changed in order to take account of the original TV series, and not just the movie. In addition to that, a couple of other points that didn't really come up in the discussion, I noted that a year before The Avengers was released, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery came out, which might have poisoned the well for any other 60s-based spy movies and the prospect of them being taken seriously. Pierce Brosnan, no less, said that that was responsible for changing the direction of the Bond movies. Also, I noted that the new film version of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. is being released. It's another adaptation of a 1960s spy TV series. It's being released on the exact same weekend in both the U.S. and the U.K. And while The Avengers' original tagline was Saving the World in Style, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. has said Saving the World never goes out of style. Guy Ritchie should really start to pack because the reviews might not be quite what he expects. If you have any messages for Cinema Limbo, feel free to send them to at cinema underscore limbo via Twitter. However, until next time, farewell. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network, Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.